Our scripture reading for today is Psalm 51, 1 through 19. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part of you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then the tongue, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor do good to, to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Keep your finger in uh, Psalm 51 there. If you can turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Yes, we've finally made chapter 3. You are correct. Romans chapter 3. Remember, chapter 1 gave us the definition of the gospel message in the beginning of it. The end of chapter 1 talked about the wicked sinner who sins openly and pub publicly. Then in chapter 2, we talked about the moral sinner, the one who sins privately and holds other people to a moral standard that they themselves cannot keep. Then the end of chapter 2, we talked about the hypocritical sinner, the one who holds other people up to a standard that they cannot keep and that they sin and break. And they're very hypocritical about it. Now we come to chapter 3. Chapter 3. Chapter 3 now talks about the Jewish sinner. The Jewish sinner. Now, before you start pointing fingers to somebody that's Jewish and say this is for you, this I would apply to us. The people who go to church every Sunday. Now remember, this is Paul stepping on your toes, not me. Okay? So send the emails to paul.gmail, not to me. As we begin talking about the Jews... There's a lot of things going on in the Jews, the history they have. Let me just remind you of some of them. 
For 400 years, they were slaves. God delivered them from Egypt. They wandered in a wilderness for 40 years until an entire generation died. Eventually, they entered land that God promised them. They had to fight to gain every square foot of it. They continued to fight and continued to fight and protect what they had gained. Several hundred years later, they had a civil war that divided the nation. Northern Kingdom eventually was almost decimated by Assyria. A remnant was taken captive by Assyria. Later, the Southern Kingdom was conquered and exiled in Babylon. Seventy years later, they were allowed to return, some of them. Not long after that, they rebuilt their homeland, and it was conquered by Greece and slaughtered the priests. Then Rome came, took over. 10,000 of Jewish rebels were publicly crucified. Under Herod the Great, scores of young Jewish babies died, were slaughtered because he was jealous that a Messiah might come. In the year 70 AD, the Roman general Titus carried out Caesar's order to destroy Jerusalem and its temple and most of its citizens. According to Josephus, over a million Jews of all ages were butchered during that time. Some 100,000 of them that survived were sold into slavery, taken to Rome, and put into gladiator games. Two years previous to that, Gentiles in Caesarea killed 20,000 Jews and sold what they could find into slavery. During the same period of time, the inhabitants of Damascus cut the throats of 10,000 Jews in one day. Now, Paul is asking a question. Who has been unfaithful to the promises the Jews received? God or Israel? Who broke the promises? God or Israel? Paul, in chapters 1, 2, and now in 3, has been saying something horrific to the Jews. That they're sinners, just like the Gentiles. That was too much for them. They couldn't believe it. Historically, socially, politically, they've had problems. Ever since time began. Supposedly, they were chosen by God. Supposedly, blessed by God. And now Paul tells them they don't even have a spiritual guarantee to their salvation. You ready? Are you ready? Here we go. Chapter 3. Should have a drum roll. Here we go. Verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? What is the benefit of being Jewish? Good first question. Let's take that. What is the benefit of being Jewish? The answer, Paul would say... 
the nation of Israel was given instructions from the mind of God that contained promises for the nation in forms of covenants. In forms of covenants. The nation of Israel was given instructions from the mind of God that contained promises in the form of covenants. Now, there are a large number of covenants in the Old Testament. There are about 12 of them, most people count. Six of them have already been fulfilled. Six have not been fulfilled. For instance, he was promised land. And even in Solomon's kingdom, they never had the full amount of land. So there are still promises that God has made to Israel, the nation. And we'll find out whether or not God's going to keep that promise. What advantage has the Jew? Literally, advantage means something to have an excess, over and above, a surplus. What is it they have a surplus of? They hear from the mind of God. And they've been given the law and the Old Testament and the promises there to obey. What does the Jew have over the Gentiles? They have the promises of the mind of God. Still, to this day, the Jews are studying their Old Testament. Still, to this day, they're praying for a Messiah. Still, to this day, they're reading the Old Testament. Still to this day. Matter of fact, I have a picture for you. Here we have Jews, Jewish boys in Jerusalem. Guess what they're having? They're having Sunday school class. Well, not Saturday. Saturday class. Saturday Sunday school class. Saturday, well, whatever. They're being taught. They're learning the Old Testament. They're learning the Old Testament. All these boys had been circumcised on the eighth day. They're all studying the law. They do not know Jesus Christ as their Messiah. What advantage do they have? Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 3, he's saying that no matter how much they study the Bible, they're still not saved. They are still lost. If they were to die, they still would go to a place separated from God. And eventually, stand before a great white throne and be judged. By a holy God. Now, what about the Jews? They have a lot of advantages, right? Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 17. They rely upon the law. That's good. The end of verse 17. They boast in God. That's good. Verse 18. They know God's will. That's good. Verse eight, the end of verse 18. They approve the things that come from God. That's good. Verse 18, the end of verse 18, they're instructed by the law. That's good. Verse uh, 19 and 20, they're confident in their knowledge of God. That's good. They have the knowledge of truth. Verse 20, 
They teach one another, verses 21 and 22. They have a lot of advantages. But then we have Romans chapter 3, verse 2. Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Great in every respect. The Jewish nation received the word of God from God the Father. They received the mind of God. They knew the thoughts of God. They knew the law of God. They knew the working of God. They saw God's miracles. They knew everything. But then Jesus Christ showed up, claimed to be the Messiah, and guess what? The nation rejected the Messiah. The nation rejected the Messiah, and until that time in the future, when there's a great tribulation for seven years, and the Jewish people will be cut down to a remnant of a one-third, and those that one-third will then be accepted by Jesus into the kingdom of God, and they'll experience the kingdom of God for a thousand years, and then at the end of the thousand years, they'll be led into the new heaven and new earth. During that thousand years, they'll receive every fulfillment of the promises of the covenant. Everything will be fulfilled. Because God keeps His word. They had everything. They had the oracles of God. They had the minor prophets that talked about the day of the Lord. They knew the future. They knew the mind of God. They had greater access to God's clearly revealed revelation of Scripture. They knew how to handle the Word of God. Guess what? Guess what? Some of you have a Bible. Ha 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 ha! Some of you have a Bible. You may want to call it, not a Bible, but the oracles of God. Because that's what it is. You have not only the Old Testament with those Jewish boys they're studying, but you also have the New Testament. If the Old Testament is the skeleton of God's mind, you have the flesh and blood entire body of God's mind with the New Testament. You have everything that you need to survive in this world. Sitting in your lap. Sitting in your lap. Real quick, what do you do with your Bible that is the same thing these boys are doing to the Old Testament? Or, do you seriously take that Bible and use it the way God wants you to use it? Ask me. Go ahead, ask me. How does God want you to use the Bible? Oh, thank you, all three people here. Thank you. Here you go. Here you go. Let me share with you what you have to do with your Bible. First off, the Bible is a spiritual book, 1 Corinthians 2. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. 
you have to have your spirit changed. Bible calls it being born again. You have to be changed. And then you can understand the Bible. Second, Bible study begins with prayer. Before you go to open the book of the Bible, you need to pray. Psalm 119, verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your book. Third, the Bible needs to be understood. You need to understand what you're reading. You can't pass over a verse and say, I don't understand that. You have to understand it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Understanding in everything. That does not say understanding one-fourth of the world, or half the world, or three-quarters of the world. The Bible will give you understanding in everything. So you have to be spiritually changed. You have to study the Bible. You have to pray. Ask God to give you understanding into the Bible. And God will let you know about everything. How many people just want to know part of everything? I mean, are you satisfied with that? Everything. The Greek word for everything means? Everything. Everything. <sighs> You need to learn what's in the Bible because he will give you everything you need to know. Verse 3, Romans 3. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. What is the responsibility of the Jewish nation? What's the responsibility of the Jewish nation? That's our next question. The answer is to believe the promises of God. To believe the promises of God. The Jews were given the mind of God in the Old Testament. You are given the mind of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. All God wants you to do in response to the Word of God, the oracles of God, the mind of God, all He wants you to do is believe what it says. That is it. That is it. You believe what the Bible says. What if some do not believe? That's an interesting word. The Jews have focused upon the privileges of the Old Testament, not the responsibility they have to the Old Testament. You may not believe the responsibility you have for having a Bible. But there's responsibility that comes. You're to know it. You're to apply it. You're to pray. You're to believe. Literally disbelieve, the word not believe, means to be unfaithful to one's trust. Proven unfaithful. God's faithfulness to His covenant was good long-term. Good long-term news for Israel. God will keep His covenants. However, the covenants will not save individual Israelites who break the covenant with Him. Okay? Just because you have a Bible in your lap does not mean you get to go to heaven. 
Just because you have a Bible in your car doesn't mean you'll get to go to heaven. <clears throat> you cannot trust that object to save you. You trust the words of God applied to you in your heart, <clears throat> in your mind, in your belief system. You believe it. You trust it. You do it. You obey it. <clears throat> Their belief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. God will be faithful. God will always be faithful. He will be faithful to everybody that doesn't believe in Him. By the way, what does He promise for everybody that doesn't believe in Him? <clears throat> that there will be a day of judgment, and if your name's not found in the book of life, you'll be judged forever in a lake of fire. He promises that to everybody that doesn't believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't make up the rules. He did. That's what he says. Guess what? He will be faithful to that promise. To everyone who placed the trust in Jesus Christ, what does he promise? An eternity with his son forever. And that will happen. Because God is faithful. Their unbelief, God will be faithful to non-believers. God will be faithful to believers. His faithfulness means He will always carry out His promises, whether they may be good or discipline. He will not nullify His faithfulness. You, <laughs> I had a son. He was told, he still is, I still claim him. I heard his mother tell him not to eat the chocolate chip cookies that were cooling on the counter. Guess what my son did? He went in and ate those cookies. Guess, ask me how I knew? Because he had chocolate all over his mouth and his clothes and his shirt and his hair. Okay? Guess what he said to his mother who came back in who asked him if he ate the cookie. He said, no, I didn't eat no cookie. I don't even think I like cookies. Whether you believe God or not, God will be faithful to you. If you don't believe that God exists, God will be faithful and prove it to you. If you believe in God and trust His promises, you'll have a different future than if you don't. God will be faithful. His faithfulness is recorded in the Word of God sitting in your lap. The sinner's unfaithfulness will not affect God being unchanging in His faithfulness. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Turn to Hosea. Hosea chapter 2. There you go. Let's have a speed drill. Hosea chapter 2. If God is going to be faithful, then we need to know that He will be faithful to the thing that's most important to us. Hosea chapter 2. 
verse 20. Let me read you New American Standard, which I do not like. Listen to it. Verse 20. Hosea chapter 2, verse 20. Everybody there? Hosea chapter 2, verse 20. And I will betroll you to me in faithfulness. When you, then you will know the Lord. Okay? Now, I don't even want to try to translate King James. Okay? But here we go. The Holman Christian Standard Bible does this translation. Listen to this. I like this. Hosea 2.20. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know Yahweh. I like that translation. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know Yahweh. Understand what's going on here in Hosea chapter 2? Yahweh is taking a bride, and he's taking Israel. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness. They're at a, like a wedding, and they're pledging faithfulness to one another. Ever been to a wedding? Okay, real sappy, but it's somewhere in the service they will pledge their faithfulness to one another. Somewhere, you may not be able to tell, but they in the wedding will pledge to be faithful. That is what God does for you when you turn your knee to Jesus Christ and have faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. When the day you are saved, there is a wedding between you and Jesus Christ. He pledges to be faithful. Faithful for what? Well, you know what my biggest question is for God? How can I be saved? How can I trust his work in my salvation? The Bible says I respond to God's work of salvation with faith and repentance. That's what I respond with. But there are certain things that God does. Let me give you a taste of what God pledges for you. Brides. First off, he pledges to be faithful in his effective calling of you. His calling to you has to be faithful to it. Romans 8. Second, God will be faithful in his work of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, the cleaning and renewing of you. He has to do that. Three, God will be faithful in his work of conversion through faith in Jesus Christ and repentance of your sins. Four, God will be faithful in his work of justification, of declaring you righteous. Romans 3, Romans 4. Five, God will be faithful in his work of adoption. He will make you into the firstborn son in his family. Galatians 4. Six, God will be faithful in his work of sanctification. He'll make you holy. Titus 2, Hebrews 13. Seven, God will be faithful in his work of preservation. He will continue to keep you in the faith until the day you die. John 6. 8. God will be faithful in his work of glorification. Final redemption. He'll be faithful to giving you a resurrected body. 
when you join Jesus Christ. Romans 8, Philippians 3. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son. God is faithful. The one thing you can trust in is that if you hear the gospel message, you turn to the gospel message in faith and repentance, God is faithful. He will never, ever, ever, ever break that promise because He is faithful. He is faithful. Romans chapter 3, verse 4. May it never be, rather, let God be true, though every man be found a liar. May it never be, that's the strongest negative Paul can say. May it never, never, never be, rather, let God be found true even though every other person is found to be a liar. What will always be true about God that you can believe? This is the point I didn't put up on the board. God will save people by the grace of God. How can you know that He'll be faithful to you? He will save you by His grace. It'll be His work on the cross his work of sending the Holy Spirit, His work of making you born again, His work of redeeming you, His work of sanctifying you, His work of justifying you. He does the work that will save you by His grace. What will be true about God that you can believe? What will always be true about God that you can believe? Number one, God will be found truthful. God will be found truthful. All people are in bondage to sin. That's what he's been saying in chapters 1 and chapter 2. Everybody sin. And you're caught in sin. And you do nothing but sin. And you always sin. You think about sin. You do sin. You want sin. You can't have enough of sin. You want more of it. All people are in bondage to sin. By the way, except for one person. Jesus Christ. May it never be, for God remains true to His promises even though the Jews are in bondage to sin to the same extent that the Gentiles are bondage to sin. Let, every, let everybody find God to be true. Not that God will become true, but that in every time God is tested, He will be found to be true. God is true. Even though everybody else is bound by sin and lies, and everybody deserves to be judged by God, God will still be found to be true. The Jews are at fault before God because they violated the Old Testament law. Then second, they're guilty because they rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They're guilty. They deserve judgment. God will be found truthful. What will always be true about God that you can believe? Notice the end of it. Verse 4, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. God will be found justified in calling anyone 
a sinner. And in case of Psalm 51, he's calling King David a sinner. King David, a sinner. All people are guilty of sin. You commit one sin, you're guilty. Everybody's committing a sin. Everybody's committed a sin. By the way, nobody taught my son to tell me his mother a lie about the cookies. He knew it by his nature. Every person is guilty of sin except for one, Jesus Christ. He never committed a sin. As it's written, Psalm 51, verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. King David wrote this psalm. Look up at verse 1. Turn to, are you there in 51? Psalm 51. Turn back. I said to keep a mark in that book, right? Okay, good. Glad I did. Turn there, Psalm 51. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 begins for the choir director. This is a psalm that's to be sung. This is a psalm of David. King David wrote this psalm. When did he write this song? Well, that's a good question. When Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone in to Bathsheba. Remember the story? King David was at war, and he wasn't at the war front. He was at home. He went out of, of his home on the balcony and looked out and saw a woman that he thought was beautiful taking a bath on the rooftop. He raped her. Then found out she was with child, tried to get her husband to lay with her, couldn't, therefore came up with a plan to kill Uriah. He lied about it, killed a man, broke his vows, was unfaithful, Notice what he says. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, your mercy and grace. Your loving mercy. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. He knows who God is. He knows God is holy. That's the first thing he knows here. He knows God is holy. And a God can't stand sin. He confesses his sin. Verse 3. He knows his sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. By the way, this is a year after Bathsheba. Nathan comes to him. God gives him a year to confess and he doesn't do it. Then sends Nathan the prophet. A year I know my sin. He confesses his sins to God. Verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned. He knows that he's who he sinned against. He sinned against God. It's God's holiness you sin against. 
and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. See, that's what Paul wants you to do. He wants you to have this confession. He wants you to confess your sins to him. He wants you to take responsibility for your sins, that you've sinned against God. God's justification is that God can judge you because He's holy. And He's justified for condemning you for your sin. By the way, one sin gets condemnation. Here King David admits his guilt and admits that God's righteous. King David assumed full responsibility for his sin. He ordered murder. He lied. Uriah is dead. The baby from Bathsheba dies. Here we have his repentance and how to be healed of your sinful sickness. God is justified in calling King David a sinner. God cast King David into hell. God would be perfectly in his right. Nobody would say he did a bad call. God is faithful to his promises, even in his judgment of people. Go back to Romans chapter 3, verse 4. The end of the verse, it says, and God will prevail. I like that. God will prevail. If God justifies and says you are guilty of your sin, He will win the victory. It's like a courtroom setting between God and you. God will always win in the courtroom. He will always be right. He will always be justified. You'll always be guilty. When you are judged... God would be pure and righteous in His sensing, condemning you for a life in the lake of fire. God is right and true whatever consequences come because of your sin and mine. Now remember, this is Paul in that day, talking to Cumberland Bible Church. <laughs> that you don't get caught up in trusting coming to this church or having a Bible and thinking because you come to this church and have a Bible, you'll be saved. When your heart is continually, continually, continually sinning. He says... God will be justified. He'll be righteous and holy in judging you. David, King David, a man after God's own heart, King David repented. He said, God, I sinned against you. Maybe somebody in this room needs to say 
to God, I sinned against you. Bow your spiritual heart to God. And cry out for mercy. Here you go. Application. Well, I confess my sinfulness against God's oracles daily. As I tell others that forgiveness comes from Jesus Christ as your Savior. Before they stand before a holy God and righteous judge and you face condemnation. Will I confess my sinfulness against God's oracles daily as I tell others that forgiveness comes from Jesus Christ as your Savior before they stand before a holy and righteous judge facing condemnation. God begins, excuse me, Paul begins dealing with the Israelites here and then he covers them more fully in chapters 9, 10, and 11. But he'll get there. He'll get there. Hudson Taylor, the missionary, was in Birmingham, England. And he was to speak at a meeting in the evening at the 7th Street schoolroom. <laughs> the person that invited him to come speak told him to forget about it. He said... There's going to be nobody there because of the storm. Nobody's going to be there. But Hudson Taylor insisted on going. He said, I must go even if there's no one but the doorkeeper. <laughs> Less than a dozen people showed up in the storm, but the meeting had unusual spiritual power. Half of those present either became missionaries or gave their children as missionaries, or became supporters of the China Inland Mission. The passage is talking about faithfulness. God will be faithful to you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, He'll be faithful to carry out all His responsibility in working out your salvation. He'll bring you one day to Himself and present you to His Son. Jesus Christ. You'll be saved. You'll enjoy a thousand year kingdom on earth, and then you'll enjoy heaven and earth forever, new heaven and earth. If you are non-believing, one day you'll stand before a great white throne, and you'll be judged based upon your faithfulness to the commands of God's word. You'll be found guilty, and God will be justified in sending you to the lake of fire. There are only two options. You either believe, or you don't. And if you believe, you'll be faithful to Jesus Christ. If you don't believe, you'll be faithful to pleasing yourself. And that's what you'll do. Till the day you die. And then the judgments of God will start. That non-believing neighbor of yours needs to hear the gospel oracles. You know the oracle of God. 
you are called to share to your neighbor. That's why he's your neighbor. That's why God put him there. That's why God put you there. That's why God will make divine appointments for you this week. So you can share the oracles of God. That there's hope. There is life after death. There's a responsibility to believing that Bible. We're to share what that Bible says with others. That is what this church tries to do. That's what the elders try to do. That's what the deacons try to do. That's what the membership tries to do. That's what the attenders try to do. Share the oracle of God. How faithful are you? Father, I ask that you would be with us as we try to apply your word to our lives. I pray, Father, that you would uh, work through the Holy Spirit, that you would challenge us, Father, this week to share the gospel message with those people you bring into our lives. I pray, Father, that we would speak the truth and love that we would share with them that there's a solution to the problems of this world, and it's through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that you've given us the oracles of God, the Old Testament and the New. We know the beginning and the end. We know what will happen a thousand years from now. We know what will happen this week. We know because you are in control, and you share with us how to live this life. Pray, Father, that we be found faithful. Faithful to doing what you want us to do. Thank you, Father, for the book of Romans and what it means to us. And the truth that's there. And how Paul so boldly preaches it. Help us, Father, to be faithful to the oracles of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.